Mark chapter 7. If you have a Bible with you, Mark chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 24 today and finish up the entire chapter of Mark chapter 7. I'm going to give you some uh, quick introductory thoughts. I'm going to ask uh, Brother Wayne to pray over the time of the Word, and we're going to get started. Um, so today, uh, 16th sermon in this series, we have two stories. I was telling Dad earlier this morning, this could be two sermons, but if we did two, it'd be like 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes each. So we're going to do two. Uh, we're going to slide two stories together. The stories are related, uh, but they are at two different times, two different distinct times, and in two different distinct places. But there's a lot we can learn through Jesus' interactions with two different people here. Uh, so once we're going to learn about this woman, this Canaanite woman, Syrophoenician woman, and her desire to have her child, her daughter, being released from a demon. And then we're going to learn about a deaf-mute man who was healed by Jesus. Before we pray and dive in, though, I want to give you one introductory thought on this first story, the story of this woman who's going to ask Jesus to re- remove this demon from her daughter. There's about 40, 40 distinct healings in the Gospels. If you go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then you match up the ones where they're, they're, the story's retold, there's about 40 different times Jesus heals somebody in particular. But only in four is a woman the catalyst of the story. There was Peter's mother-in-law at the beginning of this Gospel. There was the woman with the issue of blood who comes to Jesus and touches his tallit, touches that garment, and was healed. There's Lazarus risen from the dead at the end, but he wasn't the catalyst. It was Mary and Martha were the catalyst of that miracle. And then there's, then there's this woman. This woman that you've probably not heard a lot of sermons about. I will tell you, I told you before, part of my preparation is I go and just listen to a lot of sermons that other men have preached about the same text. Not a lot of sermons about this lady. There is not a lot to pull from. Uh, so you're going to hear about someone today in Scripture who doesn't get a lot of sermon time. And also who's quite unique. One of only four women in the Bible who were catalysts and a healing that Jesus does. So we're going to get started on that in just a minute. Wayne, if you wouldn't mind praying over time in the Word, we'll get started. Father, we thank you again for this beautiful day. It's a wonderful day. Thank you for this day to be on our fathers. Um, not only the gift to be on our father, but the gift to have your father. Amen. Facebook and all these other opinions. We hear on the news. We have your word. 
depend on that. Grow us in your word today, God. That no matter what comes our way, when someone bumps us, it will be the word of God that comes out. That's Amen. how we would react. So we need to hear your word Amen. today, this perspective today. I know you have been speaking to Brother Corey this week. You have something special. I pray that you would just ignite that fire that he's felt this week, God, as he's, as he's prayed and he's studied over that, God. I pray that you would anoint him afresh, even now, God, that this would ring so true in his heart that he could just spill it over to us. I thank you for it. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. It's good. Matthew chapter 7, we'll start in verse 24. Jesus is just coming off of a, con- a conflict with the Pharisees. Here's what happens next. And from there, Jesus arose and went away. So he gets on a boat, goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet Jesus could not be hidden. We'll pause there for just a minute. Jesus can't hide his presence. Are you picking up that theme? The last three or four stories, Jesus is trying to get away from people. So us introverts, we can feel okay about that. He's trying to get alone with his disciples to prepare them for what's coming. But Jesus is getting so popular, no matter where he goes, he gets found. And he can't be hidden here. Here's what happens to him as he's now in this house trying to hide away. Verse 25. But immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now, if we go to the Matthew version of the story, there is another detail that Mark leaves out here. The first part of the story, Matthew says, is she comes to the 12 disciples, they're outside the house, and she wants to see Jesus, and the disciples say, no, you're, you can't see our, our rabbi, primarily because you are a Gentile, you're not a Jew, you're Syrophoenician, you're multiracial, you're multiethnic, and you're a woman, you're not getting in to see the rabbi. But she gets on past them because she is persistent. I, I missed an opportunity a couple weeks ago when I was talking about the difference between Matthew and Mark and how, how differently they tell stories, and I don't want to miss this illustration again because I missed an opportunity then to tell you. I thought about it like this. Mark tells stories like a man does, and Matthew tells stories like a woman does. Gentlemen, if I asked you the story of how you met your wife, you think you could cover that for me in like 60 seconds or less? You could give me the rundown? Ladies, if you were telling me the whole story, do you think there would be an intermission and I might need some, some popcorn or something? Like, we tell stories differently, but we have the same details. And Matthew tells a little bit longer, and she, he mentions this woman's already been told no. The disciples told her no, but she's persistent because she's desperate for her daughter. So let's stop and feel that with her. This woman's miserable. But she has some kind of hope that maybe this Jesus can rescue her daughter, feel this woman's need, and then maybe feel your own need and know this woman who is an outsider like we are, how does she ask from Jesus? How does a person in dire need petition Jesus? Maybe we can learn something from her. And you can even see her desperation. It says here, or at least in the uh, in the Matthew account and this account that she fell down at Jesus' feet. This same language was used a few chapters ago with a guy named Jairus who didn't have a, a dead daughter. At least he didn't know she was dead at the time. Uh, he had a sick daughter and he falls down at Jesus' feet, a very prominent, wealthy, well-thought-of man falling at Jesus' feet. And now we have 
a Gentile, Syrophoenician woman, the other end of the social spectrum, she falls at Jesus' feet. Equally, the powerful and the weak fall at Jesus' feet when they need something. Which, by the way, if that's where you are today, that's a really good place to be. If you need something, Jesus' feet is a very healthy place to be. This woman uh, is begged in verse 26. She begs Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. That word means persistent. She won't stop asking. She just keeps asking, please do this for me. And then in Matthew's account, not in Mark's account, I love this language. She says, Lord, have mercy on me. She doesn't say have mercy on my daughter. She says have mercy on me. Parents in the room, you, you probably get this. Because there's nothing worse than your child hurting, is there? It's the worst. It's not having, don't have mercy on my child. Have mercy on me because this is killing me that she is being affected by this demon. And so she is desperate. That's her, that, that is her posture towards Jesus. And she had all of these obstacles in front of her that she had to overcome. This was a very hard request for her to make. I've already mentioned some of these, but really quickly, consider how desperate she must be to overcome these obstacles. She's overcoming her issue of ethnicity and race. She knows this is not an interaction that's supposed to be happening. She is a woman uh, and uh, of, of minority descent. She's not just a Gentile. She's multi-ethnic. She's disliked by lots of people where she lives. So she has a racial issue. She has a gender issue that she's a woman. And then don't forget, in Matthew 15, the disciples were against her. So we have this this woman who's got a lot of obstacles, all this intensity. She's overcome a lot of obstacles thus far. She's not supposed to be here asking this of Jesus. Feel all of the desperation and intensity. And now look at Jesus' response to all of that desperation and intensity. Verse 27. And Jesus said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. We'll pause there. What a weird response. Like, for real, when you read that the first time through, you go, wait, what? It, it sounds like a riddle first. first. First for me, it sounded like a riddle, and then it sounds super mean. Like, like he's calling her a dog, maybe. But this, the key to understanding this response from Jesus is understanding the word children and the word dogs. So let's talk about that really quickly. First, the word children. There's two words for child Jesus could have used. He, he can use technon, which is what he used here, and that means biological child. Like, that's how some of you parents feel about your kids sometimes. Like, they're mine, and that is the end of that. Like, that's all my emotion I could have right now. They happen to be mine, and that's all. And that's biological children. He says, shouldn't the technically that person is your child, shouldn't that biological child eat before the dogs? So just continue to build on that. You, you have sons and daughters, that is their technical title, but you probably call them something else. You think of them as something, well, there's more of a term of endearment. I think of Caleb and Kobe, who are my technically nephews. I don't even call them that. Those are my boys. Those are my, those are my guys. Actually, Caleb sent me a text this morning for Happy Father's Day. I still haven't read it yet because I knew I would come up here and be a puddle, just sobbing if I would read it. So I'm reading off the, I'm saving it for after church. But they're, yeah, they're my nephews. That's their office compared to me, but... Those are my boys. You might have, she's technically your daughter, but that's my girl. That's not the term Jesus uses. Jesus uses the biological children. They, they happen to be my offspring. And then dogs. You've probably heard the term before if you grew up in church, that the Jews called the Gentiles goyim. It meant 
it meant scavenging dog, or we might say mutt. It was an epithet. It was an insult. Jesus doesn't say goyim. He uses the word that we might use for pooch or puppy or pet. Like it's, it's a very sweet term. So Jesus, in using that word, he's already sharing a moment with you, with, with her. It's a moment of saying to her, I, I know what my people call you. You're not that. You're not this thing you've been called, my, my people have been calling you goyim. You're not a scavenging dog. He actually uses a very diminutive, sweet term for her. So the actual response is, shouldn't the biological children of God, shouldn't Israel, shouldn't the Jews, shouldn't they eat before I take something from their hand and throw it to you, who, who is not being insulted, but you are not one of God's people. His point is, it's not right that I take from the Jews and give to you because you wouldn't take from your own children and give to your dogs. At least I don't think most of you would do that. Don't do that. Some of you would struggle with it. Jesus and this woman uh, know. And this woman also knows and Jesus knows. He is first for the Jews. That's, that's not controversial. That is the, uh, the prophecy going into, uh, out of the Old Testament, into the Messiah, is he's going to the Jews first. Paul even does this. If you remember years ago, we went through the book of Acts together. And in every city Paul goes to, he goes straight to the Jews first. They get the gospel first before everyone else. But they get the gospel in the, in the Messiah first, not only. Jesus says, should the children eat first? Not should the children eat only. But he said they should go first. So he's talking about the Jews here. That the purpose of this Messiah was always to go to Israel first, but Israel was always going to be used to show salvation for people everywhere. That was God's promise, that through you, I'm going to make my glory known to the whole world using the Jews. And so that's what he says to her. She says, Jesus cast this demon out, and he says, hey, shouldn't, it's it's not the case that the biological children of God should have stuff taken from them and given, even to you, even there's nothing wrong with you, we shouldn't Uh, We shouldn't do that. So verse 28, she answers him. She says, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. You may not know it yet, but this is a very clever woman. This is, again, the key is changing, is understanding dogs and children. So this time she says, yet even the puppies, even the, the sweet pet that you might have, she switches that, but then uses the more intimate term for children. Not the biological term, but the, like a child you actually love and want to spend time with. Like This, this is your, your boy, this is your girl. And so she says, yeah, not taking from your biological children to give to the puppies, but you know, even, even the puppies on the table eat what's left. They still get something of what's left. That She knows, yeah, you're here for the Jews first, but there's going to be more of what you have for all of us, for all of the nations, all, for the Gentiles. And I, at least I feel Jesus smirking at this comment because she's desperate, she's emotional and persistent, but she's also paying attention to Jesus. She's being very clever as she works through this request. And so then Matt, uh, Matthew adds to what I'm going to read to you now, but here is Jesus' response going in verse 29. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child laying in bed and the demon gone. 
Matthew adds that Jesus says, before you can go your own way, he says, Woman, great is your faith. For this, you, I, I'll grant this request. You, you go, your, your daughter's healed. I will admit, if I'm with this woman, if I am this woman, I would be asking Jesus to come with me, like, just in case. Like, let's, let's verify. You should come on home with me. Um, but very sweetly, in this conversation, Jesus looks at this outcast woman who shouldn't be there, multi-ethnic, multi-racial woman, probably not of any renown, and she asks something that he doesn't have to give because he's there for the Jews first, and very just sweetly and generously. He grants this woman her request that she made desperately, she made persistently, and she made faithfully. She made it in faith. And we're going to learn about her a little bit more later, but that's part one. So that's story number one is the Syrophoenician woman and her daughter being healed. Going to verse 31. There's a time lapse here. There's also an area change. So this two very different scenes. Verse 31. Then Jesus, Jesus returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Uh, pause here for a minute. Uh, Mark is not giving you factual filler information here. He wants to specify that Jesus is leaving a multi-ethnic area that still has a lot of Jews in it. He's wanting you to know he's going to the Decapolis now. This is very Roman. This is very pagan. They've got lots of gods here. So he wants you to know that Jesus is crossing over to very pagan territory. And you also might remember the Decapolis from chapter 3 or 4 of this series. This is where Jesus got off of a boat in the middle of the night, and instead of being greeted by crowds who wanted to hear from him, he was greeted by one terrifying naked man who would cut himself up, who was living in the graves. Like He, he was met by a demon-possessed man. When we were last in the Decapolis and Jesus left, that demon-possessed man, after he had been freed, he says to Jesus, can I go with you? And Jesus says back to him, you can't go with me, but I want you to go tell everybody what God has done for you. And when we left the Decapolis, as far as we can tell, there was one person in all of that area that knew about Jesus, that knew the Messiah had come, that knew the power of God on this rabbi. So verse 32, Jesus is back in town. And when he gets off the boat, they, some group, brought to Jesus a man who was deaf had a speech impediment. And they, this group, begged Jesus to lay his hand on the deaf, mute man. I do love this, that at the very least, that freed, demon-possessed man, he has spread the word. Um, Jesus' reputation had grown everywhere around this lake, the Sea of Galilee. But there is a, a very different scene here, right? He's been getting off the boat, and there's been crowds coming to him. There's not a crowd coming to him this time, but there is some people who have heard or some people who know about him, and the sweetness of knowing that it was that probably through a series of events from Jesus freeing that man and that man telling people what had happened, here is now a group bringing this deaf-mute man to Jesus to be healed. It's also the case that we know this man once could hear. Um, that's what the speech impediment is supposed to mean, that he wasn't born deaf because he wouldn't have had a speech impediment. The impl- implication is he became deaf over time, and now he's have a, having trouble speaking as well. So we have this man before Jesus, and we have verse 33. They've asked Jesus to heal him. Here's what Jesus does. In taking the deaf, mute man aside from the crowd privately, Jesus put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, Jesus touched the deaf, mute man's tongue. And looking up to heaven, Jesus sighed. 
and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. I want you to notice a couple things here. One, Jesus takes the time to get this man alone. We know we have this Jesus that we say at the end of our services, go preach the gospel to the whole world, and he cares for the nations. Jesus is the Savior of the nations and all the peoples, but you have to recognize, too, he cares for you individually, this one man. I need some of you to hear that, because that is not just rhetoric for me. I'm not trying to warm your heart. I'm telling you a thing that's true. He cares for you, one-on-one. And I think some of us are kind of nervous about that. I don't know if I want to get that close. Because if, if I get that close, here's something in my life I might have to give up. If, there's some, if I get that close to Jesus, maybe, maybe he's going to find out something about me and want to turn away. That's not your Jesus. He pulls you aside. He wants to get close. Take that from this man. Get close to your Jesus. He is not just for the church. He's not just for the world. He is for you. And then we have this unique method for healing. Uh, most of the scholars I did read for, for, uh, for this preparation, they think what Jesus is doing in the touching of the ears and the tongue, which again, in the time of COVID, is a very funny thing. that He's just all up in this dude's uh, his business. They think he's doing some kind of rudimentary sign language. Like, I'm telling you, I'm going to heal your ears. I'm going to, I'm going to heal your tongue because these are the problems that you have. So that's what Jesus is doing there. And then we're going to talk about this more later, but it hit me hard reading this, that Jesus has this deaf-mute man, this suffering man in front of him. He's alone with him, no one else around. And our Jesus, the God of the universe, touching his ears, touching his tongue, and he... Sighs. I wonder about that sigh. We're going to explore it more later. All of the meaning of what it means that Jesus sighed for this man and then healed him and said, Ephatha, be opened. Here's the result of it, verse 35. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released. And he spoke plainly. Imagine that feeling for that man. That retrieving once what was once lost. I'll tell you, I, I don't get emotional at most things I see on the internet, but when I see a dog get rescued, or I see those videos of people who can't hear, like the babies that can't hear, and then those, they put the cochlear implant in, like I'll lose it, because that's so sweet. And this guy just got Jesus cochlear implanted. Like everything's fixed now. Consider the feeling of having what was once lost retrieved. Verse 36, And Jesus charged them to tell no one, But the more Jesus charged them, this group who had come with the deaf man, the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure. We're going to pause in the middle of verse 37. So Jesus says, don't tell anybody. But the the more he told them not to, the more they they did the opposite. So they are not good listeners, but you can hardly blame them. That phrase, they were astonished beyond measure. There is some connection for all of us, and in this text, there's a connection between being amazed and wanting to proclaim what, what amazed you. In this room, we can give, we can give these examples. Uh, when you find out you're having a baby, most of you, do you keep it a secret? Usually that's something you're, you're excited to celebrate. We literally print things, which I think is awesome, and we send it out. When there's engagements, do we, does it just come up and 
casual conversation or is it something you tell someone quickly because it's exciting news because the more amazed you are by something, the more you want to proclaim it. This makes, and that, that reality, that they were astonished beyond measure and that's why they keep proclaiming it, it makes me wonder about us. It makes me wonder about me. I have this truth that is astonishing. Why do I want to proclaim it more? I wonder if we've gotten over it. If we've gotten over how wonderful the story of Jesus is. I just got back from a vacation out to a really dramatic place. And I mean it. Every time I walked out of the door and looked up and saw those mountains, four or five thousand, six feet in elevation. And every time I walked out, I couldn't get over it. Like I just kept catching my breath. This is incredible. And I would talk to the locals there. And they seem to have gotten over it. They just lived there that long. And they don't know how spoiled they are, that they get this incredible scenery all the time. And I fear that's us. I fear that's us with the story of Jesus, that we become so familiar with it that we just got over it. I love that we sing here. Tell me the story of Jesus, write on my heart every word. And that part of that song is, tell me, the, the people that have heard it the most, it, it's mo- more wonderfully sweet, more wonderfully sweet every time they hear it. That should be us. This is not a story we ever get over. The story of our redemption, the story of our, our being bought back from certain death and wrath of God. Oh, they were so astonished by what they seen, they couldn't stop proclaiming it. And it makes me wonder, maybe something to search today in your own heart, in my own heart. Have we lost being astonished by what Jesus has done for us? So they're astonished and they're proclaiming it. What are they saying? Verse 37 will tell you what they said. Saying, Jesus, he, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. There's two, this is the end of the text for today. There's two major things that are happening in this verse that you may not catch. One is this phrase, he has done all things well. Mark is very specifically connecting Jesus back to Genesis language. That when God created all things, he saw it and he saw that it was good and it was good. On the fourth fourth day, he made sun, moons, and stars and he saw that it was good. In this phrase, he has done all things well is very similar. It's, It's supposed to be in the literature that you're getting this picture that Jesus is taking part in recreation. That God took part in creation and then sin broke it. And what does Jesus come to do? He's come to recreate. He's remaking the world. One deaf ear making to hear at a time. One dumb tongue to hear at a time. He's remaking the world. It's one of the major literary themes of the Bible is recreation. And can't we all feel right now the world is so broken and we want it remade? We want it recreated. Here is Jesus with this language. He has done all things well. He is remaking our world. And the end of this, they say, he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. If you want to go to Isaiah 35 in your Bible, that's great. If you don't, that's fine too. But he's directly referring to Isaiah 35. There's a messianic prophecy about what it looks like when the Messiah comes. When God sends this promised one, what's it going to look like? And one of the things mentioned in Isaiah 35 is when he comes, when the Messiah comes, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. This is in verse, uh, this is in verse 4, uh, I believe, of Isaiah 35. 
and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. That's what's going to happen when the Messiah comes. So, this is very similar to a few weeks ago when we saw Jesus walking on water. It was significant because that was supposed to be a God thing. Only God walks on water. Well, who's the only one that makes the deaf speak and the deaf hear? It's not Elijah, it's not Elisha, it's not ever prophets. Only the Messiah is going to do that. And here he is doing it. So Jesus is doing something unique to the Messiah. Only the Messiah does that. So that's very important things. There's this declaring. He does all things well. Like God created the world, Jesus is going to remake it. He's going he's to make that new heaven and new earth. And who makes the deaf hear and the mute speak? Well, only the Messiah, only the chosen one of God does that. And now, before we get to application, I want to take you to Isaiah 35. I'm just going to read it to you. This is a prophecy of what it's going to look like when the Messiah does come. I'm going to start reading in verse 3 of Isaiah 35. So this is about Jesus when Jesus comes. Here's what happens. He will strengthen the weak hands and make firm, feeble knees. This is a, a, a reference to aging. Um, as some of us all know, he will strengthen the weak hands. He will make firm the feeble knees as our hands get weak, as our knees get feeble. He says he's going to stop all this breaking down of our bodies. He will say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Fear not. Well, why? Well, here's why. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. Now, there's, a tr- there's trouble in the Jewish world uh, about the Messiah. They don't, the Jews that don't think Jesus is the Messiah because the way they, uh, they try to theorize it because, uh, is this. We have in the scriptures, we have some prophecies of the Messiah that make it seem like the Messiah suffers. He's a suffering servant. And then there are prophecies like this that seem like he's coming in triumph. So which one is it? And the Jews have theorized, well, maybe there's two. Maybe there's going to be one Messiah that comes and suffers for his people, and a second Messiah will come to be triumphant. But we know from the New Testament, we know the reality of Jesus, is that what actually happens is that we get two comings of the Messiah. He comes one time to do what he did 2,000 years ago, and he's going to come one more time, not as a suffering servant, but as that roaring lion we just talked about. He's coming back again. We sing that all the time. And he is not coming as a suffering servant this time. He's coming as conquering king. And so when we read these, we don't struggle with them because we don't think there's two messiahs. It's Jesus. He just comes twice. And this, this phrase here of wh- why should I have, not have my anxious heart? Why should I be strong and fear not? Well, Isaiah says here, because your God is coming with vengeance, with judgment, with the recompense of God. He's going to come and save you. And what we know about Jesus, about this Messiah, is he came already, not with vengeance and judgment, but to take it. Because we deserved vengeance and judgment. We deserved the recompense of God. Our Jesus came and absorbed it on himself. So in that, in that second coming, he will come and save you. Amen. He's not coming with vengeance for you. He's not coming with recompense of God for you because he already took it. He's coming to save us from those things. And I want to read to you the rest of them, that passage from Isaiah 35. Then when he comes again, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame, the lame man will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. 
That word for mute is only used twice in the Bible. Right here in Isaiah, the mute are going to sing for joy, and that word is again is again used right here in Mark. The two are totally connected. The only two times those words are used. All right, so that's all the text for today. I have three things for you. The first two are quite short. Third one, not short, but we'll, we'll come through these first two pretty quickly. Uh, so what I have for you is the petition of the Syrophoenician woman, what we can learn from the petition of the Syrophoenician woman, what we can learn from the friends of the dead man, and three, the deaf man, and then third, uh, the compassion of Jesus. Here we go. What can we learn from the Syrophoenician woman when it comes to how we petition God, how we pray? I think there's four that we get from her. Number one, she came in boldness. She came in all through those, uh, those issues that she had, being a woman, being multi-ethnic, the disciples trying to stop her. She just keeps coming. She's bold in her prayers. Be bold in prayer. I saw a meme this week. I think one of you shared it that said uh, on social media, if everything you prayed for yesterday was granted today, would the world have changed or just your world? Boy, that got me hard. I was like, ouch, that hurts, man. Because uh, most of our prayers are about ourselves, and that's fine. But let's be bold in our prayers. Let's pray for the world to change. Let's pray for big things to happen. So she had big, bold petition, and we should follow her lead as we pray. And number one, boldness. Number two, she was persistent. She was begging, right? She kept asking for that need to be met. So follow that. Go to the Lord daily with your needs. And then go to the Lord through the word daily for your needs. So go to the Lord daily with your needs. Go to the word for your needs. Because as you've probably heard in your Christian life, often prayer doesn't change the circumstance. It changes us. And the way that will happen is you get into the word. So be bold in your prayers. Be persistent in your prayers like she was. We saw in the Matthew account that Jesus said to her, you have great faith. Woman, you have great faith. So go to the Lord in faith. Pray expectantly. And the one I wanted to really focus on for a second. She prayed in boldness. She asked in persistence, with persistence. She asked in faith and she asked in desperation. Here's a reality in our lives. We're not desperate. We're very comfortable. We have what we need generally in life. Even those, those of us who are trying to stop a sin that so easily besets us. We're not desperate enough to stop that sin. We're not desperate enough to end whatever emotional strife we're praying through. We just think we're going to figure it out. We don't recognize how much we are desperate for God. We don't recognize that we need God as much tomorrow to get out of bed than whatever grand action it is we're asking for. So be desperate as you go to God, knowing that you cannot get what you're asking for on your own. You need God to move. So what can we learn from the petition of the Syrophoenician woman? We pray, we petition to God in boldness, with persistence, with faith, and we come desperately. Number two, what can we learn from the friends of the deaf man, from this deaf man? I would start here. Wouldn't it be great to have friends that this guy had? Like, he's got terrible need, can't hear, can't speak. And he's got some friends who heard from some previously demon-possessed crazy guy that well, there's, there's a healer. There, there is this, this man who has come in power, and they bring their friend to that healer. They bring their friend to Jesus. So can I encourage you? Be this guy's friend. Let me remind you that we introduced 
last year, who's your one? We, we want to be people that are that broken people. They are spiritually deaf and mute. We want to bring them to Jesus. That means bringing them here, but also just means introducing them to your Savior. Be like the friends of this deaf man. We all know people who need to be brought to Jesus. So let's be about it. Let's not talk about it. Let's be about being, being friends like that, that we bring people who need Jesus, we, we introduce them to him. So there's the petition of the Syrophoenician woman, the friends of the deaf man. Let's be like them in bringing people to Jesus. And then finally, this is the one I wanted to spend some time on. It's the compassion of Jesus. Like this woman in the story, Jesus is for you too. Like this deaf man, Jesus intends to recreate you. And I think that desire that Jesus has for us to to grant that request, to recreate you in the new heavens and the new earth, to heal your wounds, I think all that comes back for me to that moment, I think the most powerful in this text, of Jesus being with that deaf man one-on-one, looking up to heaven, and breathing out that, that sigh. And there's a very famous sigh. It's very different than the one we we get from Jesus here because obviously the one Jesus has here is a sigh of longing for the brokenness of the world to end. But I don't know how many of you this is going to resonate with, but let's try. There's In cinema, there's a very famous sigh. It comes from John Travolta in a musical called Grease. Right near the end of Summer Nights, anyone remember that sigh? He's looking back, he's remembering back on that summer. And his sigh is... This one of longing for a good thing. And he lets out this breath. There's so much meaning in that breath. But we have a very different side, and I think we've all felt it before. That, that groan that comes out of us of just deep sadness, pain, fatigue. And you really can't put it into any words. It just comes out as, oh. And I love that Jesus in this moment felt the pain of this man and let out that sigh. Consider what was coming for Jesus and not too long from this time he was going to be betrayed. He would have his fake trial. He'd be beaten, abandoned. The wrath of God and death itself was coming for him. And with all that coming for him he was focused on this man's grief and our Jesus sighed for him. We have a Jesus who sighs for us one on one. We have a high priest, Hebrews 3 says, who is familiar with our trouble. He is able to sympathize and empathize with our trouble. We don't have a God unfamiliar with our plight. We have a God who's not far away, but who's imminent, who put on flesh and dwelt among us and has experienced what we've experienced. And as I think Jesus in that moment, all of the healings and all the work that he's doing, and this man and his broken ears and his broken mouth, I think Jesus has this moment of knowing it's not what this is for. This is not how this world's supposed to be. It's not supposed to have this kind of pain in it. This groan, this word is actually used again in, in Romans when Paul writes that the entire earth is groaning. It's groaning to be renewed. And aren't we all aching for that too? aching for a renewal in this broken world. And I think Jesus felt in that moment, this world wasn't meant for deaf ears in a broken tongue. This world wasn't meant for the issues burdening us in this room today. The world wasn't made for the goodbyes of death, divorce, and separation. 
This world wasn't made for relational strain and estrangement among those close to us. It wasn't made for spending days watching your family under intense pain and intense medical care. It wasn't made for your insecurity and anxiety and stress. It wasn't made for your consistent worry about what happens next for your family or your kids. The world wasn't made for these things. It wasn't made even for our prayer time today as we worry about our aging parents and about friends that we know with cancer, friends going through these divorces. The world wasn't made for these things. And I think Jesus sees all of that stuff this world's not made for. And he's wrestling with it while he's on this earth. And he just oh, wasn't made for this. I've learned over the years the many times when people are sharing with me the things that are troubling them, apparently they just want me to listen and not fix it. Like they don't want, they want me to feel it and then sigh along with them. And that works out because I can basically never fix what's going on. But that's not true with Jesus. We have this comfort that he sighs along with you in your trouble. He feels along with you. But there is a day coming where he's going to fix it. It's not just an empathy. He is coming in power and glory to make all these things right. Because you know what? I read right here in this passage. He does all things well. What God did in the beginning in making a good world for you and me. Jesus is coming to do all things well again. To remake the heavens and the earth. Because he does all things well. So... Pray like that Syrophoenician woman came to Jesus. Be the friends of that deaf man bringing people to Jesus. And recognize this. You don't have a Jesus who is far from your trouble. He knows it. He's intimate with it. And he wants to be with you one-on-one with it. And he's going to make it all right. Because he does all things well. Let's pray together as the band comes up. We're going to sing about Jesus. We're going to sing Glorious Day. Even ultimately singing about his return where he is going to make all things right. Let's pray as the band comes up.